They can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Well, welcome today. I'm with uh, Terry White, who is uh, one of the mediators and the shareholders of the Upchurch Watson White Max mediation firm. And uh, Terry has been a mediator since uh, 1988. Has done over 4,000 mediations in a wide range of contexts of pretty much anything imaginable. Uh, whether it's uh, straight personal injury cases or medical malpractice or products liability or business disputes or eminent domain, Terry has done it all, and most would consider him to be uh, part of the best of the best of mediators. Terry, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being here, and I appreciate those remarks. The uh, legacy of uh, your firm, and when I think of how long you and John Upchurch have been partners together, how long would it be? John and I have been together, uh, I think, 38 years. If you were to distill some principles or concepts or practices that have helped you maintain a 38-year business partnership, (laughs) What would they be? You know, I think I've taken great uh, uh, instruction uh, from the uh, the TV show The Odd Couple. Um, you know, I you just dated yourself as if nineteen eighty eight didn't date you. Felix Felix Unger uh, is uh, a different character than Oscar, and so uh, that's pretty much the way John and I have been uh, over time. He's very judicious, removed, appropriate, et cetera, and I'm oftentimes profane. So. <laughs> so how have you made that work? We've made it work, I think, because because our, our points of view uh, or the, the way we approach something is, is oftentimes so different that that's what allows us to achieve a consensus about something. And so, and I think there's a, there's an underlying respect, uh, that we're not taking positions just to be contrarian. I mean, there's, there's, there's feeling and, and sentiment behind why we're having this respectful disagreement. And there've been different initiatives that have worked well and some that, that didn't work as well. Well, it, it seems counterintuitive because we see things so differently we were able to get consensus. Those seem like conflicting ideas, consensus, and different viewpoints. Well, regrettably, you know, in, in today's world, uh, it's it's a kind of dialogue that we're not having as much anymore, um, and that that's regrettable. And I think that's the key. We've been respectful of each other. We may seriously disagree about something. We have our reasons, and then we analyze and evaluate those and achieve with something you know the expression you know don't hold the the good hostage to the excellent and so uh that's kind of where it is and so you need to you need to balance tell me about that don't hold the good hostage to the excellent what does that mean what it means is okay Terry, this is the perfect answer. This is the way it needs to be. It has to have this, 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 and this. And the answer is, well, actually, I can't get you this, 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 and this. Um, but I can get you three out of five for it. Do you, do you want to discard that, that opportunity because you can't get it all? And if you try to get it all, are you risking it all? And so isn't there something in that continuum that is is perhaps uh, more accommodating? Spoken like a true mediator. <laughs> we reframe it's a lot of a things. Zero, it's not a zero-sum game. It's like, uh, and, and what it triggers in my head is not sacrificing good at the altar of the illusion of perfection. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. After you've done something, 
as many times as you have, how do you stay enthusiastic over the long haul? How do you avoid becoming that, excuse my frankness, that tired old dog who's just kind of checking a box? How do, you, how do you personally, Terry White, stay enthusiastic? I think that there's a certain underlying sense of empathy for the people who really don't want to be there. And those are the parties to the lawsuit. Either this happened out of nowhere, it wasn't planned for it, whatever it is, they didn't want to be here. And so if you keep that in in your mind and you say, they didn't want to be here, well, how can I get them out? You know, that's what gives you the energy to do it and the sense of obligation to try, you know, whatever you can to get them to feel more comfortable with making another decision that perhaps lets them to move on. Yeah, that that makes sense is it, when your your client in your mind is the process which is trying to bring closure to mm-hmm. these people, you can mm-hmm. feel passionate about the gift of that. Are I in my mind rightfully or wrongfully have this vision that the mediator life is all bonbons and daiquiris and and, and, <laughs> and you come home and you're not thinking about the cases and there's some truth there there's a little truth there but it's a modicum of truth. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, you have had a, a role in recruiting some of the best mediators in your practice and I, <clears throat> I I know them I work with them and uh, they're excellent what are the qualities when you're deciding, is this somebody I'm going to invite into my practice, you're looking for? What I'm looking for is someone who um, has the respect, not only of their own general side, but of the other side. Uh, you know, you can't be a, a flamethrower plaintiff's attorney or a flamethrower defense attorney and say, you know, I've had about all the fun I can handle with this. I think I'll become a mediator. Yeah. Well, guess what? You're going to burn. Uh, yeah, because so you've been burning you, bridges. You've been your burning your practice. Yeah. And so, so you look at, you see, you know who those people are. You know, in any given community, when you poke around a little bit, this guy, this lady, they're, they're taken. They're taken seriously. They they've they are adroit and respected. Once you've got that, combined with some energy, you got to have the energy and the drive. It's, it's creating a practice. Creating a practice takes time. Tell me uh, about the the concept of uh, the crack in the mediation. <clears throat> the crack <clears throat> for me is an expression that. <sighs> During the course of a mediation, kind of coming off of what I was less saying, the someone will say something. There'll be it may be a short sentence, maybe just a word. It may be it just may be uh, a reflective remark or ostensibly a discard. But it's not. It it tells you you can hear in that crack that. This is where the opportunity is. This is how I'm going to get a conversation to move. I'm going through that crack, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna widen it, and we're gonna get where I need to. And that's what. But if you don't hear it, if you don't hear it, and you're sitting there at the end of the day, there probably was one, and you missed it. You're saying in most cases, most cases there's a crack. There's a moment. If everyone's paying attention, the crack will reveal itself. Yep. Yes, and the crack means there's an opening here, and that's the the best opening to move towards closure. Towards achieving a dialogue. I'm going to be able to achieve a dialogue off of this tact. Seems like that would be as helpful as an advocate as it would be as a mediator to be listening for the crack. It's it's critical. Yes. Um, I, I have a bunch of questions, but since we're talking about mediation, I'm just going to nerd out for a few minutes and say, what do you do? Uh, well, first I'll define it. Positional bargaining. How would you define positional bargaining? Positional bargaining is I want seven. Uh, well, I'm only going to give you nine. Uh, um, you know, or I won't give. Uh, you know, um, I'll give you three. Um, okay. Well, okay. I'll take four. And, and so the thing just moves around us numbers. I had a, a case with a guy who was a great lawyer in Jacksonville, and he had a. Uh, it wasn't deliberate, but it was effective. Uh, stutter. 
and uh, he said to me as we got to the mediation, he said, now, Terry, we're not going to talk about the facts, and we're not going to talk about the law. We're either going to settle this case or we're not. And that goes to your question of positional bargaining. I said, well, let me make sure I understand how this is supposed to work. You're going to say you're going to offer X. Yes. And they're going to say they're going to say Y. Yes. And they're going to say that what you wanted was too much. Yes. And then they're going to say, I said, it makes no sense. There's no intellectual integrity to this. How am I supposed to get you there? So intellectual integrity is where you ultimately try to move. And be, because... You know, sometimes what's being said, um, no objective listener could say that makes any sense. How do you get out of positional bargaining? You uh, effectively let it run its course to the level of frustration and you realize you're getting nowhere. You're getting nowhere. So so you, 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 you play. You know, you, you identify what, you know, what's the mechanism that your adversary seems to want to use, okay, and then you, you know, frustrate him or her in accomplishing it, but using their approach to do it. And so, you know, then they get frustrated. Well, they're just doing this. They're just, oh, you know, funny. Take a look at the mirror, you know. How about hard lines in the sand? Um, I, I find increasingly uh, I don't like when other people draw hard, hard lines in the sand for me. In other words, we're only going to continue talking if you go to blank. <clears throat> so I don't, first of all, I don't like someone telling me what I have to do as an advocate. And, and second, I hate it when they just draw a, a, a random hard line in the sand where uh, it feels like, any negotiation after that point, you're tacitly agreeing to their hard line. What are your recommendations to lawyers on strategies for how you avoid getting pickled or boxed in on hard lines? A way uh, is to uh, feign ignorance. Uh, and so, um, and, and sometimes you bring parties and lawyers back together. And that's where you can, the, the lawyers can look each other in the eye and gauge whether or not what's being said is really what's being, what's meant. Whether this hard line is such a hard line. Where's the intellectual integrity, again, behind that uh, number or that position or whatever is being said. So, so that's one approach is bring the people together. Fain, go, I don't know what's going on. Can you help me out? I must have really misread this thing. You know, I just don't. And then just listen and you'll, you'll get it. And if it falls follow, uh, hollow, then you'll know that it's, this is a positional thing that's designed to just try to get you into a place that doesn't work. Um, so that's that's one of the um, one of the approaches you can use. The other is play the game, play the same game. Okay, you're telling me I got to go to ten. Let me tell you something. You need to have five on the table. You negotiated for me, told me where I have to be. Let me tell you, I'm going to negotiate for you. Tell you where you have to be. So it's, that's a, that's that's good. That really is good. Let's let's talk about brackets. Thoughts on mm -hmm. brackets. Brackets. Uh, well, first of all, what's a bracket? A bracket is when somebody says, "Look, Terry, I'm here to negotiate between you know 15 million and 25 million." Okay, fine. Uh, and so you you know what is that? Well, a it's a pretty big range. They're also pretty big numbers, but it's a um, it's a soft way of making an offer, and it's and it's 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 in a range, and so there aren't hard and fast commitments because what you always need to figure out are we are we in the same ballpark? That's what you're trying to get to. You're trying to at least get in the same ballpark. When is way. the right time to engage with brackets? Um, Oftentimes, when you um, have have run your course on positional bargaining, 
because you're not you're not getting enough indirect communication to suggest where something can resolve and so this will allow you to take an indirect approach to see without anybody being you know compromised or you know forced to do anything and so it it kind of gets you some bigger pieces that you that you move and then you see if you can get them to cross where do you see the biggest mistakes being made with brackets well you you, people who want to do them prematurely um because you know sometimes what that portends is that this my positions are not going to have intellectual integrity, and now I want to, you know, potentially blow this thing out of the water by creating a bracket that simply is doesn't bear any relationship to risk and exposure. Yeah, early uh, putting a bracket out there when it's not really a bracket; it's, it's not, just a negotiating you, you tool. That's right. You haven't you you haven't exhausted the linear aspect first to get a range. We're, we're oh my God, we're you know fifty fifty million dollars apart. Okay, fine. Well, we haven't gotten anywhere. Well, then you do your bracket. All of a sudden, you say, hmm, you know, no man's land looks to be about twenty million dollars apart. Smaller. I want to talk about the future of mediations now that we've had a taste of zoom and for the lawyers uh we i I won't say all some of us we love the convenience we we love not having to leave our house or our office and there's so many things that are attractive from a lifestyle perspective of zoom so i know those positives um i'm curious on these two questions here are my two questions one other than the obvious, which is improve quality of life of not having to travel as much, what are some of the positives of Zoom mediations that you're seeing? And then second, what are the kinds of cases where you believe they really need or would greatly benefit from an in-person mediation? How do we identify those? Um, so that we can be more assertive about an in-person mediation? I think that um, in terms of, of the uh, reasons that, that it's good, is, is, you know, um, there are, in, in all practices, there's, there's are, you know, there are categories, effectively, of different kinds of controversies the more complicated the controversy gets and the more dollars that are involved the more you, you probably have more personal dimensions involved different decision makers along the line etc and oftentimes you know identifying you know what that where that is 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 important and the what's curious is that the um, the Zoom process actually lets you go to the other guy or the other lady. You know, okay, let's. We, why don't we pull your supervisor in on this? Why don't we pull in another one of your adjusters? You know, you, you've kept you've kept talking about you know when, when I go to the. Well, let's. Why don't we go the go to the, and we we end up expanding our dialogue, and we don't end up just with a person who's been pre-programmed with parameters. And so there's an opportunity, and it's not so inconvenient, just, you know, hey, let me give you the code. Here it is. You know, and there you go. Get the (laughs) actual decision makers and influencers engaged. Which are the cases where you think these cases really will be better off in person? The ones that are filled with raw emotion. Those those cases to to then take that raw emotion and project it only in the context of a two-dimensional environment that's a bad combination that's a bad combination yeah it's like text messages it's a lousy format correct processing anything emotional zoom feels very similar it's you know while you can get some sense of feeling uh you you can't get a complete sense of feeling um you know why why is somebody's heart breaking in this particular issue why are they so sad about something what what is it 
And so, you know, what what worries them? It's fascinating. If you can find out what worries a person, you can find out what worries a person, then that's a, that's a crack, uh, and you can yes. uh, start to work your way through. And we're all worried about something on every case. Unless somebody's got a perfect case, you, you probably should be. Yes. What What is the biggest case you've ever mediated? Biggest can be number of people, dollars involved, uh, complexities. Uh, they're different. They're different categories, obviously. Um, the um, it's a public record. You know, the Dupont Trust was locked up in a in a a, a number of um, trustees, et cetera, and things that were happening and not happening. And so you end up with, you know, you actually have, you know, um, state attorneys involved because you have a charitable trust and then you have different laws that may be in play. And so, you know, that was that was significant and and uh, very large. They got a couple dollars in the DuPont Trust? A couple dollars in the DuPont Trust. <laughs> and you get to meet some fascinating people. You get yes. to meet a DuPont. So anyway, um, the other case uh, that was fascinating uh, for me was uh, the, uh, the El Faro, which was the vessel that went down in the Bahamas that came out of Florida and all uh, of its um, uh, occupants died. And it ended up in 17,000 uh, feet of water down below. And so um, working our way through all of those families, and we worked our way through all of them, all of them, uh, those cases were over within less than two years. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, it directed itself to closure. Different types of personality, maritime families are, are not exactly the same as a, you know, a cosmopolitan family or an agrarian, agrarian family. And so they, have, they, they approach things, they see things differently. And so, but that was a, that to me was a very fulfilling experience because it involves so many people. Um, and yet we found a way. The best of the best that you've seen as lawyers in the mediation negotiation setting. I won't make you name names, but what I'd love to do is to, to discuss the qualities or the traits or the disciplines or the mindsets that the very best display in mediation and negotiations. I think it's, I think it's two things. Um, I think it's intellectual integrity of your positions so that you create the opportunity for the dialogue combined with tempered passion. Um, it's easy to be, you know, extraordinarily over the top, you know, passionate about something. But if your goal is to achieve a dialogue, have you just alienated your listener? Uh, you know, are they going to be so focused on the level of, you know, invective that was out there that they didn't hear any of the nouns, you know, because that's that's what can happen. You know, it gets the message gets lost in the in the method by which it's being delivered. And, you know, in fairness, mediators got to watch that, too, because, <laughs> so, yes. you know, um, uh you know, there are times when, you know, even, you know, as a mediator, too, you, you simply, you just feel like exploding uh, because something just doesn't make any intellectual sense. And I'm not saying that the world is necessarily driven by, you know, a intellectual um, uh, integrity, but it sure is a, a good kind of, you know, um, measure of how to have a, how to have a conversation, yes, you know, um, and what it doesn't do is it doesn't insult anybody's intelligence. You're inviting the discussion. Mm. Intellectual integrity, tempered passion; those are great. Let's talk about uh, 
how you recommend lawyers and advocates to dealing with someone who is in the process, not engaging with intellectual integrity. In other words, you have what I'll call a blowhard, you know, well, wants to ignore, you know, wants to ignore the facts, wants to misstate the law, wants to whatever, you know, uh, what, what needs to occur there is, a, um, it probably cannot happen with both of the people involved directly. It has to be indirect, which is why our process has both joint sessions and private sessions. That's when that's when a mediator in a private session gets a chance to to really, you know, poke around and on on the intellectual integrity aspect to to watch the client who's who's there and you, you can oftentimes you can read it. The client's not buying it. <laughs> the client's not buying it. If the client's not buying it. How am I supposed to deal with it in the other room? You know, and so uh, it, it's it's a. Uh, that's where I think that uh, you, people don't like to be embarrassed. Yes. And so you avoid the embarrassment by having the conversation privately. It may be with the lawyer just by himself. It may be the lawyer telling you, Terry, you need to talk to my client. And that's another scenario. Uh, just talk to my client. By myself, um, not so keen on that one. Uh, so, uh, but you know that that's part of that process is you know giving somebody a, a graceful exit from the position that they've taken that's inherently unreasonable uh, or whatever. People just don't like to be embarrassed. They just don't. Yeah, um, there's a lot to what you just said. Um, it seems like when I translate that. Uh, practically to myself, it is being patient and disciplined enough to not be deterred by someone else who is not being uh, intellectually honest or is being passionate without any tempering, um, allowing that to pass so that there's a moment where we can at least move in the direction of intellectual uh, integrity through the mediator. Yeah, I, th I think that that's. I think that you got it. Um, the uh, you know getting to that point where uh, again the person doesn't feel embarrassed. They believe they've been heard, etc. And you're it 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 gets you back on a respectful plane not just a positional plane because the respect kind of just has disappeared. I asked uh, Steve Sawicki when I talked to him about kind of the mindsets of some of the best lawyers in mediation setting. Um, and one of the things he said to me that I remember was a specific mindset of uh, some level of optimism that the best lawyers have when they come to mediation, that they come to mediation even if the parties are are significantly far apart, they come with some level of optimism that the process will be helpful. If you were to add what what mindsets successful lawyers in negotiations have, what are some of the mindsets that you've seen that successful folks have? I think I, I think the mindset is. Um, the level of appreciation and understanding of your client and the various dimensions that are impacting the decisions you're asking them to make. I think that that helps to keep you uh, grounded. Uh, we all have life experiences, um, but I, I think that you know that that's a, a kind of a helpful way to approach it, and I agree with Steve. Uh, you know that a level of optimism. Um, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, what what is what is a jury trial? A jury trial is a deferral of judgment to others because they're smarter, because they get it better than you do. 
because they understand it better, because they have your circumstances that are impacting your, you know, goal. Um, not really. So, uh, you know, you make a choice against your option. Your option is to go try the case. And for a lawyer to be able to let his client know that there are both tangible and intangible energies that will be consumed by this process, uh, I think is uh, a helpful uh, yes. item to work through. The, uh, it, if you were to, uh, unfiltered, express where you see people screwing up the most in mediation, lawyers in particular, mm-hmm. you're just like, they, they are their own worst enemy. What are some of the areas where you see the biggest mistakes consistently made by lawyers in mediation? Uh, you know, ex- excessive bravado because it puts everybody off. Um, and, 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 and obvious misstatements. Um, you know, whether it's a factual item, so-and-so was a witness to the accident, la, 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 and so-and-so was not even in the frickin' room. You know, whether it's, well, this case stands for the proposition that you can't possibly win on this issue. And actually, it stands for the opposite proposition. You know, you, you, so you kind of have to call a spade a spade. Again, you, that may be a private conversation with yourself and the lawyer in that instance, because going back to, you don't want to embarrass anybody. Well, uh, when mm-hmm. I uh, talked to one of your partners, mediators, one of the things he said when I was saying kind of what makes Terry White special, uh, for lack of a better word, you're special. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about both your ability to use humor and lighten situations as well as your emotional intelligence on people. You are someone that strikes me as not complacent with where you're at. Uh, not that you're not happy and pleased with where you're at, but you seem like you want to be a better mediator next year than what you are this year. You want to grow in all those areas. What are the things you do to keep growing? I think uh, one of the things I there, there are, I think, probably two. Um, one is I try to be um, introspective. I, I, you know, and you know, you know, what is happiness? What isn't happiness? You know, how do you have? You know, those, you know, um, those kinds of things. You know, what's a good life? What's a whatever? You know, and and uh, and so those are the types of items that I'll read or, or, you know, listen to. Uh, um, and, and I find that those are helpful. They're, they're sort of personal, personal growth oriented. And then they, obviously they would spill over, um, into the mediation, uh, process. Um, and so I think that that's, that's probably the, the primary one that I, that I do is I, you know, I listen to a lot of different things and I'm always fascinated by the other way of looking at something mistake that you most see young lawyers making let's let's talk to younger lawyers what's the most common mistake there it's um it's combination of being technically correct or thinking you are um and not seeing the big picture it's the it's the forest from the trees what what's your theme? What do you mean theme? These are my facts. No no no. What's your theme? What's yeah. the story that this these facts are going to become, so that somebody wants to finish your story, um, and so they don't. And it's not it's not anybody's fault. It's a lack of experience and opportunities to try cases, in some respects. Um, that the importance of those things because can be overlooked. And, um, you know, uh, probably inappropriate, but I was once had a case and a younger lawyer and, uh, he said, uh, I said to him, I said, look, patience is a virtue. And so he spits back at me and he goes, I lost my virtue when I was 13. 
I looked back at him and I said, losing it to yourself doesn't count. <laughs> so, so impatience, a belief of, you know, the, you know, the, an unwillingness to, to anticipate there's another way of looking at things and not having a theme, not having a theme. Andrew and I, when we're brainstorming how to be effective is there's so much noise in the world and in litigation, uh, the very nature of a highly contentious litigation process is loud, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fear we have, uh, fear may not be the right word, the concern we have is that we just become part of the noise. We really come into a mediation as a lawyer on behalf of our clients, and rather than helping to bring clarity or uh, something that is helpful, we're just clanging cymbals in an already loud world. So what are some of the things that you've seen lawyers do, whether it's in advance of mediation um, or at the time of mediation or after mediation to bring clarity rather than just noise? You know, I I think uh, contextually what's important is that this case that that you or I may be working on, I may be mediating, and I asked the quiet, well, you know, what's your trial time on it? It's going to take us three weeks. Okay, well, we're here today. We don't have three weeks. So all of the posturing and all of the whatever, we need to get past that. We need to get to the to the nub of of the issues. And so appreciating the context you've moved to which is conversational design to allow there to be a decision to be made by the people most effective. That's, that's an important feature to get past the noise. But I do agree with you that um, we oftentimes cause or contribute to the noise. My advice in that regard is in pre-mediation discussions, that's when you want to vent them. Vent them then so that they can be dealt with when you have a conversation with the other side. I see we've kind of got off to a bad start with this order on the motion to compel. This language doesn't particularly read. Have we gotten things back on track since then? You know, and you know, so that's that's a way to you know kind of approach it, but deal with it. Deal with it in advance so that you can. Take the, take the powder out of it and the noise out of it. Mediation openings. Uh, there's an ongoing discussion in the country of the West Coast concept of not doing opening pr- presentations, that it pulls people further apart. There's the uh, East Coast uh, uh, that is more inclined, it seems like, to uh, do opening presentations. Where are you at in that? Uh, the dialogue on that issue. My, uh, you're correct. There is an East Coast, West Coast item on it. I Tupac think, and Biggie on the th- on the yeah, West Coast. Yeah. And yeah, and I think I think that um, you know it, it can be driven out of every you know different communities uh, culture. Um, you know, uh, well we we can't waste time on that. You're going to alienate me. You're going to get well if I'm. I'm going to alienate you. Did I choose to alienate you? Did I pick the wrong words? Did I not find a way to converse with you? Is that what is that what you're talking about? Alienate? Isn't this really your chance to talk to somebody about how you're thinking, what you're thinking, where you're evaluating it, where this piece of evidence is? Isn't it your moment to shine? You know, and you know when you. Um, appeal to somebody's ego they oftentimes respond to it and so you you can get a response and then you can get the person you can i've had situations where they say we're not going to do opening statements and i'll ask about six or eight questions and i say okay we're not going to do up here's going to have a couple questions and so then all of a sudden opening statements start you know uh and so you kind of you think it's important i think it tests the party's metal on is what you're saying sellable? Hmm. Because if, you, if you're reluctant to say it, why? Is it because you don't believe it? Is it because the facts don't support it? 
Well, because the law is not uh, there. What's the right amount of time for a mediation opening statement? Let's, I, I know it's wide range. That's the easy answer. You don't get credit for that. If you were to say, if, I, if Terry White were king of the world uh, and you were to say, this, these are the guidelines, this is the bracket, this is the bracket right. for right. The, the time for a, a mediation opening. Well, two things, I think. Uh, you know, we all have attention spans. And after a certain period of time, you're not listening as, as clearly. Uh, and so you may be missing some distinctions. You may be missing a few things. The other thing is that there is something to be said for efficient conversations. Saying something four times takes four times as long, but it doesn't change the message. So, you know, make your point. Get it. Move on. You know, if you got more than Anything that, you probably, longer, you, probably, uh, you probably lost them. You probably lost them, you know. And you can lose them early if you drone on about something that doesn't mean anything, you know. Is 20 so. minutes too short to do a substantive? No, but, but I would say this. Uh, the shorter it is, the more important it is to have exhibits behind what back up what you're saying. And so some people, oh, Terry, we have this PowerPoint. PowerPoint and a shared screen. A shared screen, that's one of the biggest aspects we got with Zoom, a shared screen. Let's talk training for a second. If you were to um, give uh, some books or TED Talks or podcasts, whatever it is that you think are must-reads or must-watch for anyone that wants to be a great uh, lawyer in negotiations and mediations, which ones would you recommend? Now, obviously, the thing that brought all of this into play was, you know, Rogers Fisher's book, Getting a Yes. And as, uh, you know, I, I you know, took a couple courses from Roger. And, and so uh, you're looking at, okay, what are the interests as opposed to the positions? What are the, you know, what are the, what, what motivates, what doesn't motivate? How do you validate? What do you use to trust, et cetera? You know, how can you have a negotiation when you have no trust at all? How do you, how do you do it? Well, you have to, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to create trust. What do you do to stay positive? Um, I, uh, I look around the world and I say to myself, this, this is almost too good to be true. I mean, I, what, do I, what do I really have to complain about? You know, really? Um, I have an older brother who has severe cerebral palsy. And he, um, one time he and I were, were sort of talking. He can't really talk. We can spell things out. And he, uh, I said to him, I said, look, I said, look, the cards could have come out different. You could have been me. I could have been you. Uh, you know, if you got on to do A, B, and C, and this is, you know, I would have been in your circumstance. And boy, did he get mad. And he got mad, and he, and he, and he, he started out. He goes, I've had the best life anybody could ever have. Hmm. So... You know, he he even looked at his own situation, which on its face appeared this can't possibly be. And the fact of the matter is, that is how he saw the world and how he sees the world. It feels like that's a gift if you can see the world that positively. And a lot of people struggle with that, you know. Yeah. Um, and talk about dealing with loss and challenges in life. Um if you were to pick the hardest loss, personal, professional, whatever you choose, what would it be? And how did you walk through it to help give people some perspective on how to walk through hard stuff? Uh, the hardest thing I ever had to uh, deal with was my first wife, who was also a trial lawyer. Um, she uh, was a very good uh, uh, medical malpractice primarily. And, all, uh, all the good lawyers do. There you go. See that? And so uh, she had taken ill, and we ended up on this odyssey. Uh, began in, uh, in Daytona Hospital and moved on to Shands and then ultimately moved on to NIH. And, um, and then uh, uh, two things. You know, um, one of which was, you know, when she 
when she died um obviously that uh was horrible but you know uh, it was during the big storm in 96 in the northeast and as i say we were at nih all the flights were gone there were no flights to be had i got to a train station i had to get back to my kids and that uh uh so i had to get on a train for 24 hours um that was a big one but you know to the uh, to the positive side of that you know one of the things that happened in the process was that uh first we had an issue of bleeding and just stop the bleeding guy can you just stop the bleeding okay you want the bleeding stopped stopped it okay fine then you get to shans and say okay good news bleeding stopped the liver's failed it evidently burned itself out Okay, hey, can we kind of get this liver back? I mean, I'm bargaining with God. And so, uh, you want the liver back? Sure, I'll give you the liver back. Great, works out. Oh, Terry, we've got a new problem. Her immune system has failed. Uh, secondary, to, I need to get to up to NIH. So get up to NIH. And uh, then when we're there, um, she uh, ultimately, she was going to get a stem cell transplant, and these things were going on, and certain things were going right and not going right. And so uh, the stem cell transplant uh, didn't take because of an infection. And they were checking to see what that was. And uh, they did a, a puncture, and they uh, caused the bleed. And she ended up paralyzed and waist down. And so, you know, that's when I finally got to the point in my life where I said, okay, I asked you to get me past this, get me past this, get me past this. Every time I asked you, gave it to me. Here's the deal. Just do what's best. Hmm. Just do what's best. I don't control this. I'm doing everything I can, but just, just do what's best. And coming to grips with the fact that, you know, we, we, need to be able to let go we need to be able to trust and obviously as you can probably gather you know faith plays an important part in my persona and so um but that was uh, that was the biggest lesson that i i learned from that which was you know that just do what's best i have uh three more questions uh, the first one is if you had a magic wand and you could wave a magic wand and fix any issue in mediations that you perceive to be broken and you could just wave the magic wand and fix that issue, what would it be? It would, it would, it would be to, um, get, people to be more open and reflective the more we get into efficiency as the driver or cost savings as the uh as a driver which which could become a problem by virtue of uh zoom as an example you know carriers used to send people all over the country day in and day out their their travel budget is a lot different than it used to be yes and but has that taken something away from the process uh so um you know i I think that in terms of if i could if i could change something i would don't i would urge people not to get caught up in the efficiency with the belief that it's necessarily productive that's good I asked two questions there every, mm-hmm. every person I talked to. The first one is if you were to give one piece of advice to a group of lawyers or people that are 25 to 35, they're in the first part of their career and it can be in any area, what piece of advice would you give? Know that you are at the critical stage of establishing your reputation. 
So, you know, maybe don't be the flamethrower. Maybe don't be the person who alienates. Maybe don't be the one who objects to every request to produce simply because the form says that's what I should do. You know, that's at the end of the day, it's it's your late you asked earlier, you know, how do we how do you pick, you know, people that you think are gonna be good in mediation? Well, Scott Vaughn was is one of the ones that, you know, I could see in my interactions with him that, that he he simply had a way of of seeing things and was respected on both sides of the of the aisle. And that's you know, that's what you have, that's what you look for. Yeah, you're forming that reputation, and it's it's uh, it's very uh, hard if that if the formation looks <clears throat> differently than you're really going to want your career. It's hard to change. It's almost like a tattoo. It's done. Yes. Yeah. Second group of people, um, they're uh, we'll say 45 to 55. They've achieved some level of stability in their practice and some level of success, but they're. They got a long way to go. They're they're not in the fourth quarter. They're metaphorically at halftime. What piece of advice would you give them? I think it's the same piece of advice I try to, you know, give to myself. Although I'm on the older side of that category, um, you're out of that bracket. Don't, I don't mean somebody don't, needs to. Say well, that's it. why we have that's why we have brackets. You see, <laughs> so that's how we kind of explore them. Um, but uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Just don't do it. Um, because you're setting yourself up for something to go wrong. Well, that's, that's good. And on that note, I won't take myself too seriously. And I will uh, say to you, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the opportunity.